Welcome to The Gateway. This week we hear from Natalie Kosh, who is Professor in the Geography and Environment Department at Syracuse University. Natalie is the author of a new book, Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia, which was published by Verso in January this year. In the book, Natalie looks at the connections between deserts in the US and the Arabian Peninsula, teaching us to see deserts anew, not as mythic sites of romance or empty wastelands, but as an arid empire, as she says, a crucial political space where imperial dreams coalesce. The book begins with the figure of High Jolly, a camel handler from the Arabian desert who went to the US to introduce camels to America's conquest of the southwestern desert. I begin by asking Natalie to introduce us to High Jolly. Yeah, Hi, Hi Jali or Haji Ali, there's actually a lot of confusion uh, amongst those who were reading this history as to what his exact name was and how, how he was referred to at the time. Uh, but he was one of, the, one of the people that were brought with the camels that arrived in the United States in the 1800s. But basically the, the U.S. Um, military people who wanted to bring in these camels, they knew that they would need uh, people to manage them and to handle them. Uh, so he was one of these individuals who was brought over. Uh, as, as it turned out, they, they actually got a lot of guys who were the cameleers who didn't really know how to handle the camels. They mostly just wanted to come uh, and get a free, free passage to the U.S. Uh, but Hajali did, and he was one of the most skilled uh, cameleers that was able to, to um, get, the, get the camels moving across the desert, uh, and he had a pretty unique skill in, in that sense. Uh, but he also, yeah, he just became a person who ended up after the camel experiment from, from the mid-1800s, after it was ended, uh, basically right before the Civil War, uh, he ended up staying and living in Arizona for, for quite some time uh, and, and made first made Tucson home and then Quartzsite, Arizona, his home. And that's Quartzsite is where he died and, and was buried. And he was sort of hired to come to the U.S. to help with the expansion into um, the, the desert to the south, right, I guess? And it was sanctioned by U.S. Congress and they provided, oh, from memory, did you say, was it $30 million or something like that? Or 30000 <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, no, no, maybe maybe at, at, at the time an equivalent amount. But yes, a very, a very large amount of money at the, at the time to try out uh, the, the idea of importing camels to work, uh, to, to essentially work for the army and help it establish these different military outposts in, in the desert southwest. Because at this point in time, what we think of now of Arizona, uh, California, and much of the rest of the Southwest, this huge tract of land, it uh, was really only part, became part of the United States in 1848. Uh, so there was not really any road infrastructure. It was very difficult for the U.S. Um, military to kind of establish, establish a presence in the desert Southwest. Uh, and one of the big expenses of this actually was pack animals, because they would have to also transport the feed and the feeding the animals was, was very expensive. So camels were seen actually as, as an efficient way to help with establishing these outposts and also um, doing so efficiently. The camels could, could trek through these very difficult terrains. 
they could also eat anything along the way. They didn't need to pack special food for them. Uh, so, so there was this grand, grand idea that they would, that they would help bring down the cost of also this military undertaking, um, and yeah, speed, speed up some of the transport of goods to the U.S. Southwest as, as the U.S. was trying to take over this land. And you, you use this, um, the entrance of camels to the U.S., uh, as a way to look at the, uh, as a way of politicizing the desert, I think you're right. Oh, the political lives of deserts. Um, can you explain what you mean by by that term? Yeah, absolutely. So I should say I'm a political geographer. And so uh, I, I've always, as, as geographers, we often get a very broad training. And I think that's what I've always loved about uh, about geography. And as somebody growing up in the desert southwest, I grew up in Arizona, um, I always sort of thought about the desert in this abstract physical geography sense, rather than necessarily thinking about the politics of what it means to live in and inhabit a desert. Uh, all the different political aspects are, are the, yeah, they're, they're incredibly diverse. So for me, in thinking about this particular project and, and the, the camels for are, are a great entry point to that, uh, the, the way that you can open up questions about geopolitics uh, through looking at the environmental history, through looking at the political history of these of these lands, is actually um, it's it's kind of inseparable from the material natural characteristics of the desert. And this, this for me is, is, is thinking about this intersection of the, of the physical geography issues, uh, with the political elements. Um, I should also sort of say that many political geographers and geographers in general are very careful to say that there's never really any direct relationship between natural environments and politics, but rather, when we think about and we understand natural phenomena, we have to understand that that we are always interpreting landscapes. We are always political in those interpretations. Uh, so it's never necessary. Like we would never want to say that deserts are doing X, Y, Z to politics, but rather that we, as political actors who are interpreting desert landscapes, uh, we work with that sort of desert materiality in a in a unique way. Um, and and that's reading the landscape through that kind of political lens is exactly what I was trying to do in, in thinking about this particular project. Does that feed into the sort of? I remember you writing the book the way that. Uh, North Americans, white North Americans would often view deserts and sort of landscapes as places to extract resources, basically. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think what's what's fascinating about this particular, yeah, European and North American Anglo view on the desert is is its rather colonial vision of deserts as a land to to conquer and to see as as a place for extraction of really a lot of different things over time uh you can you can also see that in the way that deserts are treated as uh wastelands and inherently somehow foreign uh that obviously is not the experience that that uh writing of the desert as a foreign place or as a wasteland is not going to be the experience of the people who are from deserts uh, and for whom the desert is home and a natural part of their identity uh, and i think of you know, I have worked in foreign deserts for a lot of my research previously in Central Asia and Kazakhstan in, in particular, uh, but for about the past 10 years in the Arabian Peninsula. 
And once you once you see how these cultural narratives in a place like Kazakhstan or Saudi Arabia or Qatar, uh, they are they have a, a close intimate relationship with the desert. Uh, so that is quite different from the European and the dominant Anglo uh, American reading of desert landscapes as wastelands and therefore places that can either be extracted for minerals like uranium or bombed uh, for nuclear weapons tests. Uh, also some, something that we see in the desert Southwest. And just thinking about that, uh, how people who see the desert as their home is a different type of imaginary to people who see it from an office block in New York or something whilst they run an oil company. I don't know where they are, but um, in the book, it's kind of a, a, in a sense, a personal exploration or a rediscovery of a history of where you're from as well, isn't it? Um, so how do you how do you kind of juggle those two things of, you know, emerging from a culture, as you write, which sort of celebrated um, the cowboy and the, the frontiersman versus a kind of a hidden history, perhaps, of colonial extraction? Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of, uh, as I said, I used to, uh, well, I, I still continue to do a lot of research in, internationally. Um and I had always, I had always been reading the landscape and my my political geography research in in Central Asia and in the Arabian Peninsula through the lens of my experience of growing up in Arizona, of growing up in this particular context, and and thinking about issues whether it was politics of water or migration, uh, all all of these sorts of issues were some something that. Was, was always filtering my experience, but it wasn't directly something that I was putting into my research. And I wasn't interrogating my own assumptions and my own uh, understanding of, of these political questions for, for different desert environments. So for the book, then I, I realized over time that that I actually needed to reflect directly on that. Um, and it, it started through a cascade of, of different interactions and seeing these different connections. But overall, I would say, as I found myself sort of falling into all these different rabbit holes about this history and the history of the Arabian Peninsula connected with Arizona, I was shocked. Constantly, I was shocked. I, I was always experiencing a sense of surprise through the research. Um, and, and in a way, that's kind of where I start the book is that I had that this this history was invisible to me, even as a person growing up in Arizona and researching uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula for many years, that that invisibility of these imperial entanglements was exactly what um, what allowed the project to continue. And that was a key part of the project of its invisibility of uh, how how empire and imperial relations continue through their invisibility. Um, so I, I think for me, bringing in my story and my own, yeah, my own blindness in a way to those questions was was a key place for me to, uh, to, to start and to pull back those questions for others who maybe had a, a similar experience of, as, as myself growing up as a descendant of the sort of settler colonial history in Arizona. And in the book, you kind of draw the relationships, mainly in this book specifically, between the Arabian desert and the, the desert of the American Southwest. And I, I want to ask, uh, is there anything, so in terms of the influence that one has upon the other, and you go between contemporary and historical, right? And it's a, it's a great book to read just for that. But is there, is there anything else in between? Does, does European imperialism 
influence uh, the Arabian desert, which is which then reflects back onto the American sort of conception of deserts and how does it work as in, just in terms of a quick geography? I think the the way to approach these questions for me as again as a geographer is to think through the lens of space time. And what what we often talk about as as geographers thinking about space time is that you can't necessarily separate uh, the the understanding of space from time, and likewise you can't necessarily separate the understanding of time from space. Uh, so to to try to discern these ties that are linking Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula, I was always trying to keep in those multiple layers of time and space in telling that story of entanglement. Uh, because, yeah, I, I just consistently was asking myself, how is it that this continues? Uh, how is it that, that we also still don't know this history? So in, in one of the in one of the chapters, I talk about these date palm projects where, you know, <laughs> sort of open with this idea that the University of Arizona was brought to Oman to build this huge new date palm laboratory there, which is it's crazy because the Omanis have such a deep history of date cultivation. Why do they need researchers from the University of Arizona to set up this lab? Um, and that that history is actually then the spark for understanding exactly those relations today. Um, and likewise, that connection today is a spark for those of us who want to go back and interrogate that um, that that environmental history. But one of the fascinating pieces, I did actually put this in the book, but one of the fascinating pieces of this is that I started to track where the first date palms from the Arabian Peninsula landed in Arizona. And the first one that arrived from Muscat in, uh, in the University of Arizona in 1891 it went to this uh, the, this experiment station, which is now located in Tempe, which is a bit north of Tucson, which is where the University of Arizona is, and it's controlled by a different university. The person in charge of that laboratory did not know that those palms had originally come from the, like over a century ago, uh, even though she's presiding over this particular. Uh, project, and she's also missing that longer history. So to, to my point before, that even for those of us who are directly working on, this, on these connections and directly working at this interface, we still often don't know that history. Um, and so, yeah, when, once you start to, start to focus on the connection between time and, uh, and space and forgetting and remembering, I think you can you you can open up a lot of these uh, a lot of these questions that that many of us um, didn't know we had. And I guess you look a lot at um, scientific research in the book as well, the the date uh, the date research, for example, uh, and other types. Uh, do, do you find that the uh, the practice of science sort of is prone to maybe not look back as much as it should in terms of its colonial heritage, or is it just part of the wider sort of um, imperial? Uh, historical imagination do you think hmm. it's, yeah it's, it, it's an interesting question and uh one that is a little bit difficult to answer i would say simply because um there's there's this this curious habit within within science perhaps of highlighting just our successes and not necessarily paying attention to our failures and of course yeah this this um this is a much wider conversation within academia. Uh, but 
Overall, I, I would say the forgetfulness of academia, sometimes it's strategic, but other times it's simply because it's it's not as visible as we like to imagine. So the, the, the story, especially in American academia, is about embracing transparency, embracing open knowledge, uh, and, and sharing that knowledge in, in a wide and dynamic way. That's often, I mean, we, we love that story, but it's often not how it's actually practiced. Um, there's, there's a lot of barriers, and many of those barriers are erected because of various financial interests. There's also political interests that, that, that are in that. But overall, what you can see, especially with the history of the University of Arizona uh, in the 1950s, when there were large grants at stake and when the university wanted to get these big research grants, uh, they, they understood that they had to have a kind of niche. And for the University of Arizona, that niche was the idea of being a leader in arid land science. Uh, but they, you know, they, they want to build these relationships, but the relationships are also capital. They're also financial inputs. They're also all of these, these things that become strategic competitive advantage. Uh, so, so in a way, because of that, it, what in a lot of cases becomes secrecy or strange activities that, that I uncovered on part of the University of Arizona, connections with um, Sheikh Zayed, the, the founding father of the United Arab Emirates, or other partners later on, it's largely because the large stakes of money and not necessarily about the scientific uh, undertaking that becomes the, the the main obstacle to that and where we end up seeing that forgetting. So perhaps the, 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 the short, simpler version would be to say that um, when when the capitalist motives come into play, uh, that that can that, that can lead to some of this, some of this forgetting and some of those um, hmm, willful uh, omissions of, of various problematic behaviors in the scientific community. And um, maybe we should focus in on the dates for a while. Uh, I mean, you cover so much in the book, but what are the sort of power relations going on there? So you, t- you speak about Amman and how Amman was a major producer of dates, had this huge heritage up until I think 1900, you write, I think, from memory. Um, and then it went down and Saudi Arabia and the UAE now have enormous sort of industrial date production uh, going on in the Arabian desert and Oman has turned to the University of Arizona to help them sort of compete if you like uh, so what's going on there in terms of sort of the historic power relations at play in in the present yeah so the the Omanis were really leaders in the early date industry and uh, th- this is something that is easily forgotten in the United States, I think, because we don't really have that much of a cultural place for dates in, in contemporary American culture. Uh, but, but they were incredibly important in the, in the late and well, in the mid 1800s to until the early 1900s. Um, so this, the, the, the dates that were imported from Oman and also Iraq, those were, those were the two major hubs for, for shipping dates to the U.S. Uh, and it was, it, it was really quite a profitable trade for the Gulf countries. There's, there's obviously also at this time the, the very difficult question of slavery uh, because the, the slavery was still being used, especially in Oman, uh, for the production of dates. And so it's kind of a confluence of factors where the, uh, the, the 
production of Gulf dates was also relatively cheap because it was based on this, this slave labor. Um, in the United States, there was also a, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and other actors, including at the University of Arizona, they they saw date farming as a possibility, as something that could be very lucrative, uh, as they were trying to figure out how to get more um, East Coast farmers to move west. Uh, so date, date farming was sort of a promise of, of a possible economically viable undertaking for, for these new farmers to come there. And meanwhile, then build up a domestic date production uh, capacity in, uh, in the U.S. Southwest. It, it really started in Arizona and it did, did very well in Arizona, but eventually it, it sort of got taken over by California, which is, in, if anybody knows anything about date production in the U.S., they will think immediately of uh, Southern California, of Indio. Uh, there's even a town called Mecca. Um, there's this Indio date festival that happens every year, and it has this whole Arabian, uh, one, 1001 nights, Arabian fantasy theme to it. So that continues in Southern California, um, but by the late or by the by around the 1920s or so, the the U.S. domestic production started to really undercut uh, undercut the Gulf date production, and as you started to see the the, the issue of slavery being raised as a political issue, um, this kind of led to especially in in Oman a collapse of the of the date industry there. People in small communities continued to 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 practice date farming, uh, but it wasn't really seen as something as a as as a major export. Um, so fast forward quite quite a long period of time. And uh, the, the the leader of uh, Oman, who became interested in thinking about how to diversify economic possibilities for Oman, thinking back to uh, this history and the, the important legacy of date farming, uh, tried to help modernize that, and in so doing, brought uh, brought some some partners from the University of Arizona to help set up this new um, date production research facility in Oman. And that was part of the One Million Date Palms initiative to, to develop one, one million date palms for, for commercial production in Oman, where, where it had really been absent before. And one of the others, I'm just conscious of the time, but I, I have to ask you about this Biosphere 2 place because it's one of the strangest things I've ever read about. Yeah. I can't believe people apply for these jobs. Uh, it's to be locked away in like a glass bubble by the time, or was it for seven years or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not quite seven, but yeah, about about two about two years, I think, yeah. is the maximum trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so Biosphere Two is is just a, a fascinating a fascinating example. So for people who don't know, is essentially uh, just this idea that that was. <laughs> I, I won't go into all the personalities behind it because it was just a fascinating set of set of uh, people. But the general idea was that we are living on Biosphere One, right? Biosphere One is planet Earth, uh, but. At this time, especially in the 1970s when the, the seed for the idea started, there was this whole environmental catastrophe narrative at that time, which was specifically focused on the way that we were going to be like human human beings were stripping the earth of all of its resources. And 
similar but different from today's climate crisis narrative. At that time, it was a resource-focused narrative, and Biosphere One was going to run out of resources. And so humans, per the designers of this project, needed to prepare to evolve off Earth. And to evolve off Earth, they they had this whole this whole vision of uh, how that might look and colonizing other other planets, et cetera, et cetera. Similar again to what we see going on with the Mars stories today. Um, so how do you how do you prepare to evolve off Earth? Uh, the story of the Biosphere Two backers was that they should um, practice this, essentially, kind of do this trial run in the Arizona desert, and they built this huge biosphere dome um, and tried to replicate all of Earth's ecosystems within this contained dome uh, and and then do one of these human experiments. Uh, So there were, I think it was eight biospherans that were locked in the first experiment, and they lasted about two years in this this particular dome. The... I went to it as a child. I think I was about seven years old when when I visited, and I, I remember my father uh, taking us there and looking inside the glass because you could, as visitors, you could look inside and see them, uh, like cultivating the plants and stuff. And I just remember watching the scene in front of me and just thinking, "What on earth is this about? <laughs> Why would these people be in this dome? Like you feel like you're at a zoo." Um, so this 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 experience really stuck with me. For, for, for quite a long time. And then, of course, then, yeah, as, as a Tucsonan, we, we sort of knew about the history of this project and eventually how it, how it failed. But really the sort of spectacle of, of having this huge glass dome and having um, the, this human trial that you could go watch and it, it sticks with you, right? Um, and that's exactly what I, I got interested in uh, this particular project because much of my work before is on the idea of spectacle. And so Biosphere 2 was a, is a really great example of how science becomes spectacle, uh, in, especially in this particular desert environment, um, that, that you can show your, your, your vision of the sort of techno, techno-futuristic vision of how to solve this kind of resource crisis. Which in this, in this imagination, it's just that we need to create this little... Um, microcosm of, of planet Earth through all these ecosystems so that we can then transport that uh, off planet. And I off planet is really the language of, of the um, of the Biosphere 2 uh, people who, who write about this in a book called Space Biospheres. So yeah, really, really uh, fascinating, bizarre set of set of ideas. Yeah, and as spectacle, it's kind of, I mean, it's very like Neom from the sound of it. It's very like Mohammed bin Salman PowerPoint presentation, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I I think this is this is (laughs) one of the things that's remarkable to me about the NEON project is exactly that idea of this of this contained space. Um, And if you can just engineer this this particularly enclosed uh, enclosed zone and, and control that it's it's not necessarily separate from the desert, right? Because if you see pictures of the neon vision and the line, it's always cutting through the desert in this really spectacular way. And it's that contrast between the austerity and the the, the, the really severe environment of the Saudi desert with then the, the, the space of opulence and, and spectacular abundance inside. 
And so it's, it's always that contrast that these projects in the desert are working with um, in, in showing how, how amazing the, the human ingenuity and the, the engineering marvels uh, that, that are being touted then as, this, as the quote-unquote solution for the, today's issue, climate crisis. Right. Rather than focusing on things that are not so spectacular, we instead get this lovely vision uh, that, that we we humans can just engineer our way out of it through building a uh, what seven hundred kilometer long city. Yeah, and do you see parallels between uh, Las Vegas in Nevada? Just the first thing which came to my he- head and uh, Neo. I'm just thinking of I've never been to Las Vegas, but that long strip, right? That's what everyone talks about with the casinos and hotels on. Is that? Do you think that's? Yeah, in in yeah, in a way, you know, maybe maybe I would say like Las Vegas in the 1990s or so, because then then obviously yeah, it was, the, the the spectacle of Las Vegas was always tied to. Uh, the, the display of water. And so all of those hotels, they have these huge water displays, water shows, et cetera, which of course you can, you, you can see that in a lot of Gulf cities as well. I mean, certainly in Abu Dhabi, if you go to the Emirates palace in Abu Dhabi, you've got huge water, water displays, really any of these Gulf cities are, are, are using the spectacle of water. Um, but interestingly, Las Vegas as a city has done ha, has done quite a bit in recent years to cut back on its water use. Um, obviously, you still have the sort of like built environment spectacle of the Strip, but other parts of the city have actually done quite a lot. Um, and frankly, I would be very happy <laughs> if some of those Las Vegas municipal water controls uh, were were to come to to the Gulf cities because goodness, are they needed? And I remember reading in German, like my undergrad, that we read like the some ancient Mesopotamian, like obviously in translation, like Akkadian myths and stuff. And they were all about like the the king putting, make, creating fountains and showing that he can bring water to the desert of of what's now Iraq, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think this is this, this is one of the really interesting things about the um, connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula and what uh, policymakers and other officials, even from Washington, D.C., understood that they could build connections with the Gulf on this point of water scarcity and why you had this really interesting connection between um, various scientists and researchers at the University of Arizona and D.C., because they they understood if they worked together, they could build important connections with especially the Saudi the, the Saudi um, leaders around water. And they could also pair this then with their interest in drilling for oil. Uh, because a lot of those a lot of those wells that they were drilling would be doubling for uh, well well, they could be searching for water, uh, but also drilling for what potentially could be oil. Um, and so that that story of helping them with their water needs and helping commercialize agriculture in Saudi Arabia, this was a really important part of that history um, around the 1940s and 50s, that then that also helps with the with with the broader effort to build um, political relations, to build uh, economic relations connected to oil, et cetera. 